folks. Welcome to Historical AF. I'm Keena. And I'm Arjun. I'm deep into history. <laughs> Just got a good sip of wine in there. <laughs> We're two history podcasts delivering you the spooky and historical book nugs you never knew you needed in your ear holes. I'm so excited that you're here with me. I'm so happy to be here. This is going to be really fun. It is. Tell everybody about your podcast. Deep into history is a labor of passion and love. I tell history the way that the ancients experienced it, like a lore master of old. So you won't just hear history or won't just hear the facts. You'll experience it. I'll take you to the battlefield like no one else can, and you will understand what it is like to live in those times, be it a samurai fighting on a battlefield or Gaius Marius facing down Jugurtha. You will be there and you will live it and you will experience it. It's so good. And it's really something that a lot of history podcasts don't do. I really appreciate your perspective and how much detail and research goes into the episodes. Chef's kiss. Thank you very much. That means a lot coming from you. Thank you. Yes, it's so good. And we were going to record the other day, but this week there was an attempted coup and, you know, some domestic terrorism in the United States. So thank you for... <laughs> understand it because I was like, I don't feel okay to record. I'm so sad. Oh, don't worry. Everyone here, I'm I'm in Toronto and everyone here was sad and just shocked. Like just completely shocked. That was ugh, I guess unprecedented. It gets thrown around a lot these days, but truly that was unprecedented in our time anyway. It was it was strange and shocking. Both of us are in that time travel. I talk about time travel talks all the time, but you guys should definitely follow them. But the Discord channel that day was keeping me sane. Just, you know, hearing other people that are into history and all of us reacting, you know, as people who love history and study history, living history, it was wild. It was surreal and strange, but yet at the same time, not surprising at all. Like, I wasn't shocked that it was happening. Other people around me were, but I think it's just kind of, if you think about what's happened over the last, 40 years. This can honestly be like the end point of this neoliberal experiment and the mm-hmm. shift to the right that has been going on both parties. It's like it would seem inevitable, you know, now with, yeah. with this four days of historical hindsight that we have. <laughs> yeah. And I, I also appreciated that a lot of the senators and some of the House members were like, we're not shocked. Like I saw a few of them didn't even bring their staff in that day because I knew something was going to happen. And so I'm like, if you've been paying attention, you probably, I didn't think it was going to get to that point. I didn't think that they would make it inside. That kind of shocked me, especially after watching what happened with Black Lives Matter and just, you know, the force that was used for people of color and then just walk, walking people. People are just waltzing in to Pelosi's office. And it was shocking. Like, I mean, in that chat, in, in the Time Travel Talks chat, which everyone should check out, follow mm-hmm. Time Travel Talks on Twitter, join join the Discord. Kara's amazing. Leia's amazing. Yes. They'll invite you right in. And you're absolutely right. That was kind of a bomb to the soul that day because we were all talking. But truly, like, had that been a BLM rally or, God mm-hmm. forbid, like a Palestinian rally or something, oh, it would have been brutalized. Mm-hmm. and. I mean, what they were doing was sociopathic, walking into the the halls of Congress with zip ties, which meant that they wanted to take hostages, and then yeah. vandalizing the seat of government. It's, it was horrific, and um, it should have been met with the same. I, no, for I'm I'm not pro any kind of police violence, mm-hmm. but given what we witnessed over the course of the summer, then that should have been the exact same response. It was very sobering. 
And then it was also really shocking to see they truly thought they were doing the right thing. And they truly believed that they were doing a revolution, not treason. And that's what kind of blew my mind. Because it's absolutely a cult. You know, the cult of Trumpism. I mean, this stuff is going to be in psych books and history books. (laughs) But but today has been just a joy to watch everybody getting arrested and losing their jobs has been the highlight of my day today. And they yeah, got- I mean, just before we came live on air, Trump's Twitter ca- account got suspended. And thank God we can all just not be dominated by this, you know, goblin because like for yeah. the last four years, it's been a nonstop assault. And I'm so done with it. I'm so done with it. It was wild. And all I could think about was just like, if this is the Matrix, can we get a reboot? Because what is happening? When the new year came, I think. All of us in the entire world were like, okay, we just got to wait for them to get vaccinated and life will be back to normal. Now this, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like it, you know, he had to go out with the boom. I'm assuming this mm-hmm. is, this is hopefully the last gasp and that's, that's it. I'm looking forward to Biden. I know people are like, oh, he's boring. And I'm like, that's the point though, right? I'm so excited to not have to think about the government every day. Just know that they're working and he'll pop in and out every once in a while to be like, hey, things are going great. And Yeah, no, I agree. I, I hope he's quiet and competent and I hope he addresses mm-hmm. some of the ills that led to Trump. And if he does that, then, you know, we have a lot less to worry about. We'll see. I don't want to put any dark clouds because Trump just got banned <laughs> yeah. ban on Twitter and we should all be celebrating that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm excited. I know, like history perspective, the Trump administration And I don't know, unless you're in the field, you probably don't know, but he dismantled, you know, every program that funded historians and museums and libraries because they're all lumped together. So they lost all their funding. A lot of people lost their jobs. And I'm just looking forward to because even in the transition team, they're already replacing those people. So I'm really excited what this will mean for, you know, national parks and museums and a little renewed hope for a lot of us. (laughs) Yeah, Dr. Cornell West, I heard an interview with him and he was saying, he's like, he's one of our, um, if, if you haven't heard of Dr. Cornell West, just Google him, watch his YouTube videos. He's one of our most important public intellectuals and a treasure. And he was saying that he sees with the Biden administration, we can look forward to like kind of a resurgence in the humanities, which I think we really desperately need. You always have to look kind of objectively and in history, we'll have to look back and see if anything came from the Trump administration. And I think it really showed our flaws in the government, but it also showed our flaws with just a society. So like you said, I hope this is kind of like a renaissance of humanities and people realizing that, you know, people need to know history because I saw a tweet today where somebody, the man that was wearing the Camp Auschwitz shirt, which fuck that guy. But somebody was like, come on, guys, let's not be mad at him. Maybe he's a survivor. Oh, people just don't know history and they just don't care. And like social sciences or even when I was like, I'm going to grad school for history. People are like, why would you do that? That's trash. Literally, well, that's what they said to me when, when I went to university for history. They're like, why don't you just do a BBA? You can go work for this hedge fund. I'm like, no. <laughs> um, I, you know, in <laughs> retrospect, the cash would have been nice, but like it's... um. Mm-hmm. It's just not my interest. And unfortunately, like our entire society is just geared toward the banking sector, really the banking, trading, that kind of stuff. And everything else has suffered as a result. And it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, the heart wants what it heart wants and the heart wants history. <laughs> to back to your point you made a couple of minutes ago about the importance of history now, 
uh, my new series versus is about the fall of the Republic. My friend led me down, led me down this rabbit hole, but what came out of it was literally a chronicle of how the Republic of Rome fell. And I start with Marius and Sulla. It's kind of serendipitous because right now, if you go on CNN or whatever, you're always seeing him being compared to like Nero fiddling or whatever. But that's not the stage we're at. America is a republic, and this is the new iteration of a fall of a great republic. It's important to know because the lessons that can be drawn from there can be applied so well to now. And it's really important. Check it out. The parallels can be shocking. It's important to know. And then when you have that knowledge, it's empowering. And that's what I've been doing. I was interviewed on the David Feldman show the other day, and a lot of his listeners contacted me and told me, you know what, now I want to organize. Now I want I want to get involved in government because, you know, when you hear what happened before and you see it happening now, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And you can kind of kind of see what will come next. And it's important. So the, the humanities cannot be allowed to die. And I'm glad we're doing our small part to keep it alive. Yeah, that was so beautifully said. I love that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. You need to put that on some merch. <laughs> Good point. All right. I got, you know what? My merch game sucks. And thank you. I got to get on that. I got on that. Kara knows that. Kara knows it. You just blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> All right. Do we want to jump into it? Let's do this. All right. So I'm going to be doing historical AF this week. And I decided that since I was a librarian before I ditched the life for the historian gig, I was going to just kick this off with some book facts. So have you ever wondered how many books there are in the world? I have. All right. So Google data nerds actually thought this too. And they decided to create a system to determine exactly how many unique books exist in the world right now. And it turns out after a lot of math and tech and stuff, that count comes to 130 million unique books. That's great. That <laughs> means people are writing. That's great. Yeah. I love that. I love that fact. And the count's a little tricky because what's a book? So they explained it really well. And I'm going to link it in the show notes because it's a huge long document. But basically, and this is a quote, it says, One definition of a book we find helpful inside Google when handling book data is a tome. An idealized bound volume, a tome can have millions of copies, i.e. different editions, or it can exist in just one or two copies. So say like a master's thesis that was published. They went by that idea because there's a few things like pamphlets that they counted once, but then they'll count editions of something like Anne Frank's book each time it had a different edition. The most expensive book ever purchased was sold for $30.8 million. Which one? It was the Codex Lester by Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's amazing. AZ, I hope that's in a museum and not in some billionaire's closet. Well, that's the really cool part is that Bill Gates bought it. So not only did he digitize it into this really cool software, but now he personally loans it to a different museum every so many months. So he makes sure okay. that it's traveling the world. So that's really exciting. And this guy was 500 years old. It's composed of 18 sheets of paper that were folded in half and written in his famous mirror writing. So it's really, 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 really cool. And it is currently displayed in North Carolina's Museum of Art in the aftertimes when we can leave the house again. In your North Carolina. <laughs> Don't worry, vaccinations are coming, I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I can't wait to do things again. <laughs> 
The longest sentence ever printed is 823 words long. Okay, I thought I had run-on sentences, but wow. (laughs) And this is from Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Then it's supposedly a legit sentence. I have to admit, I've never read it. Les Miserables, so I can't tell you. But William Faulkner has the record for the longest run-on sentence, and that was 1,288 words. Oh, my God. Five pages of a run-on sentence. My Mm -hmm. word. Back in the old times, authors' names were never printed on the covers of books because the covers were considered artwork. That makes sense, actually, because I have a very old copy of the Iliad, and yeah, doesn't say Homer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first book ever written using a typewriter was The Adventure of Tom Sawyer. Really? I didn't know that. That's fascinating. I can't imagine how long it would take to use a typewriter, especially now that I'm spoiled with computers. <laughs> We have it so much easier than older writers. Like, I mean, my God. Imagine doing it on a typewriter in like the early 20th century. It would have been ridiculous. There's no whiteout. (laughs) The biggest thing I've ever written is my thesis. But if I had to do that on a typewriter, oh, Lord, help me. God. (laughs) The most read book in the world, based on the number of copies sold in the last 50 years, is the Christian Bible with a whopping 3.9 billion copies. Wow. Money, 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 money. Does that go to the church or does it go to the publisher? That's a good question. Let me Google that real quick. (laughs) Public domain. The money goes to whoever printed, distributed, and sold the product. Okay. Okay. No wonder so many people print Bibles then. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. Who knew? Okay. So... The quotations from the works of Mao came in second with 820 million copies, and Harry Potter came in third with 400 million copies sold. Wow. That surprised me that much. Of course, I had to look up the rest. So number four is Lord of the Rings with 103 million. Number fifth is The Alchemist. I would not have guessed that. Wow. Really? I wouldn't have guessed that either. I think because maybe uh, school boards buy it. That's Um, true. Yeah. I think that could be it. Number six was The Da Vinci Code. Number seven is Twilight. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, God. Well, okay, let me ask you a question. As a historian, isn't the most annoying conversation you can ever get in is with someone who has read The Da Vinci Code and thinks that's history? Ten years ago, that used to drive me insane every time. No, 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 no. You don't get it. You don't get it. Leonardo da Vinci did this, this, and those hidden clues are there. It's proven. I read it. I said, read it where? In the da Vinci Code. I'm like, it's a work of fiction. God, it was nuts. It used to drive me insane. (laughs) Yeah, speaking of public domain, he got the da Vinci Code from a French book. It was like a con that was done. Oh, God, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it. But they basically laid that out about that Jesus was born from Mary Magdalene. And there was a man who smuggled documents into the French archives, claiming that he was the heir of Jesus. Uh, It was called Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Holy Blood, Holy Grail. That's what it was called. And um, so Dan Brown based the entire Da Vinci Code off that. And he wrote it and released it right after public domain ran out. So they had launched a massive lawsuit against him, but they lost because it was public domain. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, yeah. Dan Brown's one of the greatest con artists of our time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
but he's making so much money. <laughs> and then number eight is Gone with the Wind. Makes sense. Classic. I find that interesting that like just over the last 50 years that it's still one of the most read books. That's pretty interesting. And then the last one, number 10, is The Diary of Anne Frank with 27 million. Which is definitely something everyone should read because oh, yeah. um, speaking of history, we'd never want to go back to that again. And oh, yeah. no one should ever be in that situation again. I, mm-hmm. I read it, I think, in sixth grade and again in like ninth grade and chilling every time when, you know, like, especially as you get older, because you understand what she's actually going through. And it's just mm-hmm. yeah, crazy. I did find it really interesting that a lot of the books on here are banned books. Because I know uh, Harry Potter, Twilight, I think, yeah, The Da Vinci Code, uh, The Diary of Anne Frank, those are all banned in a lot of schools <laughs> so, and a lot of a lot of libraries. The Diary of Anne Frank is banned in schools? Really? Yeah. It's one of the banned books because she talks about masturbation. Oh, and they cut that out of a lot of editions. Banned Book Week is one of my favorite weeks of the year, and that's where librarians are just like, throw in the middle finger at everybody that bans books and then we just plaster them everywhere <laughs> so it's really <laughs> i enjoy that i ran a teen center so i'd be like this book's banned it's super cool if you read it and they'd be like yeah i'm a rebel so it worked <laughs> it's the best it's the best way to get people to read tell them that something is banned and they'll read it right away for sure yeah. so iceland has a really cool tradition it's called viola boca fjord it translates roughly to Christian book flood, and it started during World War II when paper was one of the few things that had not been rationed in Iceland. And because of this, Icelanders gave books as gifts while other commodities were in short supply, turning the country into bookaholics. In 2013, a study conducted at the university found that 50% of Icelanders read more than eight books a year, and 93% read at least one. Their Christmas Eve tradition is giving up gifts. But after all the presents are open, everybody grabs a cup of hot chocolate and then spends the rest of the night reading their books. That's very I sweet. Like I like that. I want I like that, that to be we my need, new tradition. <laughs> yeah, we need more of that in North America. Yeah, for real. I think I, think I didn't put it in here, but I think America rates really low on how much we read a year. So I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Harvard University has suspected that they own three books made out of human skin. Oh, my God. Which ones? Do they know? So the, okay, this is French. So I'm sorry. It's uh, Des Destinies de l'Aime, Destinies of the Soul. It was published sometime in the 1880s, and it has been confirmed with a 99.9% confidence that it's bound in human skin. That's grim. That's so grim. (laughs) (laughs) It has been sitting in Harvard Library since 1930. And it had a note inside it from the donor that explained that that book had been bound in human skin. And I found the note and it was translated loosely to quote, this book is bound in human skin parchment on which no ornament has been stamped to preserve its elegance. By looking carefully, you can easily distinguish the pores of the skin. A book about human soul deserved to have a human covering. I had kept this piece of human skin taken from the back of a woman it is interesting to see the different aspects that change the skin according to the method of preparation to which it's been subjected. Compare, for example, the small volume I have in my library. I have several books tanned in human skin. That's sociopathic. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that's crazy. Oh, my God. The way she describes it, too. Oh, my God. Was Silence of the Lambs based on her? 
My word. Did some digging. So the owner claims to have gotten the skin from the back of a woman mental patient whose body was unclaimed after dying from a stroke. Because I'm like, unused back skin. I'm like, who has that lying around? I'm like, yeah, you know what? Don't that? worry. Don't worry. I'm not using it right now. So just, yeah, please. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, at least crazy. he was already dead, but wow. <laughs> so the other two books, they're most likely sheepskin. They've determined that they're pretty sure the other two are not people. Okay. And the practice of binding books in human skin is not actually that uncommon. Uh, it's been dated back to the 15th century, and it's known as anthropodermic bibliopegy. And I'm like 90% sure I talked about that, or I think Ashley talked about that in a past episode, but I don't remember which one. The library at St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai is the oldest currently operating library in the entire world. And it's the second largest collection of ancient manuscripts and codices just after the Vatican. Really? That's interesting. I would not have thought that. But that's fascinating. Me either. Mm -hmm. Their archive must be incredible. Like the rarest volumes, you know. One of my dreams is always to get gain access to like the Vatican archives and the library. And, you know. Yes. If I could ever become invisible or somehow teleport myself, that would be the first place I go. (laughs) I just want to go in there. Because, I mean, I think, you know, we always lament the fall of Constantinople, of course, which had a replica, a copy of most of what was in the library at Alexandria, which Mm -hmm. we all lament. I have a feeling that they have a lot of that, like a lot of that is actually in the Vatican vaults, like not the vaults, but, you know, like their sacred library that no one else is allowed to see. Because we do know that when, when the church was rising, they collected all the works of the ancients and brought them into one place and it's there. So I wish yeah. we, we had access or even, you know, just a really, really good historian with unlimited access and do like, I don't know, an Amazon show or something about it. will tell us, tell us what's there. <laughs> yes. Oh, I just need to know. So the library in Portugal, it has a swarm of bats inside the library that feeds on insects that eat books every night. Yes, I know about this library. It's at the university. It's on top of a hill in, I don't remember the town, but yes, they actually have bats there and they preserve the books. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen, I've seen a video about that. That is so cool. My library didn't have bats. So the first ebook was actually the Declaration of Independence released in 1971. Really? Yeah. So he was given access to a Xerox Sigma V mainframe at the University of Illinois and inspired by a free copy of the Declaration of Independence, he decided to transcribe it into a computer. He made it into a file and then made it free to use and distribute, making it the first actual ebook. Wow. Very cool. That's very that's a very cool. It would have been one of those like big floppy disks that you have to hold like a pizza. <laughs> yeah, and it's actually still online. So you can Google Project Gutenberg and you can see it. Awesome. It's After this, I'm going to do that. I want to check that out. That's cool. Former American President Theodore Roosevelt read a book a day. How do you even have time? You're president, sir. I don't don't believe that. (laughs) Whenever someone tells me they read a book a day, I'm highly suspect. Like, okay, was it a condensed book? Because I don't think there were condensed books back then. I don't know. A book a day seems like a lot. Unless, I don't know, if he was a prodigy. I'm not, I'm not. Please, any of the Theodore Roosevelt diehards out there, don't come at me. Don't tweet me. I'm just saying, like, you know, I read pretty fast and I can't maybe 10, 15 chapters a day. 
Yeah. I'm a very slow reader just because I'm really ADD. <laughs> so I have to read a page 10 times. So this is blowing my mind. But he claimed that every day he would read a book before breakfast and depending on his schedule, another two or three in the evening, even during his presidency. That just seems like a big exaggeration. Do you think that means that he had three books going or there's no way you can read a book before breakfast and then two more? Yeah, I don't know. Well, unless you're like a kid's book or something. I think I think he's I think that's been spun. Like he had three books going. I know people who can do that. That that, that can have a bunch of books going at the same time. For me, like I can't do that. I have to have one book and I just finish it and then I go to the next one. I mm-hmm. wish I could multitask, but I just can't. I can't. Yeah. He loved exploring various genres, including Dickinson fiction to Greek history, and was a firm believer that one's reading preferences changed with time and mood. Which I did appreciate that because I, I feel the same way. What I like to read changes by my mood. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But always John- read history. I can read that anytime. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. John Steinbeck's dog ate the original manuscript of Mice and Men. <laughs> oh, my God. So he had to write it again? Yeah, he said like- his beloved Irish setter named Toby was the first. First to consume mice and men, literally. He chewed up half the manuscript. The letter to his agent said, quote, the poor little fellow may have been acting critically. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I love my dog. But if he would have ate my thesis, I would have just. Oh, my um, God. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. If my. If, if, yeah, exactly. If my dog ate one of my scripts, I would have. We would have serious. We have yeah. a serious issue. <laughs> Be like, I still love you, but we're not speaking right now, puppy. I just, like, oh, that would be so terrible. He just seemed so calm about it. He just made jokes. And I'm like, I wouldn't feel very jokey after that. No, thanks. Think about that. There's no backup computer file. You have to write no. the whole thing again. Oh my God. I know. I had my thesis backed up on four different files because I was so paranoid of losing it. <laughs> it's like, I've worked too hard on this. Oh, oh, oh man, I, f- I feel you. My last script, I, I lost it half of it to a computer update. Oh, so no. I had to go back and write the whole thing again from scratch. And it was a nightmare. So now I'm saving it on different flash drives, drives and I'm not taking anything for granted because it's just, it's too much work, you know? Mm-hmm. And imagine, oh. imagine losing an entire book. Oh, my God. I, I can't. I can't even. <laughs> And this I thought was just really neat. So in Iraq, booksellers leave books outside at night because, quote, the reader does not steal and the thief does not read. That is awesome. <laughs> that is, that's, that's pretty profound. I like that. I'm going to, I'm so sorry. Um, Mutanabi Street in the center of Baghdad near the old quarter at Al Rashid Street. It's home to a stunning book market and it's completely open air and nobody watches it at night. Like honor system. Don't steal it. The last little fact said that reading just six minutes a day can help reduce stress by 68%. And I thought we all needed that right now. <laughs> oh, so much stress. And it's supposed to be more relaxing than drinking a like, cup of tea, music, or even walking. So highly effective. Amazing. It activates centers of your brain that we, we just don't do. This is hilarious. I have a friend who does that, but... Not six minutes. They do, I think it's total 20 minutes a day, but the only time they can read is when they go to the washroom. So they have their <laughs> book, they have like a mini library in their washroom and they're just going, they're reading as they go. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> All right. So my actual story, 
is a tale of paperback books, war, and a selfish excuse for me to talk about an exhibit I help write. <laughs> so, awesome. Michael Hackenberg, he writes in an essay for the Library of Congress that small books and paperbacks have arisen throughout history, usually in response to a particular need. So, for example, 1501 Venice began printing small-sized editions of Latin and Greek classics for aspiring scholars. And the streets of 16th century Europe, as we all know, were just plastered with pamphlets and small books, too. In 1840s, the German publisher Bernard Tochnitz began putting out portable editions of popular books so that travelers could snap them up on their travels. And then by the 1930s, Britain was stacked with soft-covered penguin books. So in the U.S. in the 20th century, paperbacks were a bit hard of a sell. Mass producing them didn't really work because it was too expensive and then the books were too cheap to actually make a profit. And that was until a demographic presented itself that was the need of low-cost portable books, the American soldier. So in September of 1940, as the U.S. entry into World War II began looking more and more likely, President Roosevelt reinstated the draft. Hundreds of thousands of new recruits soon found themselves in basic training and experienced that due to a lack of available facilities, often included building their own barracks and training grounds. So it was not a fun time for anybody. Within a couple of years, many of them, along with hundreds of thousands of others, have been deployed. The U.S. military now consisted of, quote, millions of people far from home, who found themselves in situations of periods of boredom in the trenches alternated with periods of intense activity. So this is not boding well for mental health for obvious reasons. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) And keep in mind during this time, you also had Nazi Germany embracing book burning, propaganda, and censorship. So you have bored soldiers that are desperate for escapism. And then you also have this mighty need to just stick it to Hitler. So this idea of mass distributing books emerged to help the military fuck you hitler (laughs) (laughs) among his millions of crimes the burning of books always like you know they did it so well in that indiana jones movie like so well yeah because it's it's horrific the idea of of uh, anytime you see the destruction of knowledge is always bad Anyway, I don't want to say anymore. I don't want to bring any more downers. (laughs) Donald Trump got banned on Twitter. We're all partying tonight. Let's do this. We're all happy. (laughs) So the Army's new library section chief, Raymond Trotman, was in on this. So his initial plan, which involved using Army funds to buy one book per soldier, fell short of its goal. So in an attempt to pick up the slack, libraries across the country thought challenge accepted, and they started to run independent organized book drives. Hell yeah, librarians. Librarians get shit done. Absolutely. This this quickly exploded into the Nationwide Victory Book Campaign, or the VBC. It was a collaboration between the Army and the American Library Association, which I think I'm still a member of that, (laughs) but I don't remember, (laughs) (laughs) that aimed to be the biggest book drive in the country's history to date. Like, libraries will step up. And if you don't know, like, most people probably have been to your public library, but if you haven't been in a while, libraries... You know, especially like mine, we we fed children, you know, like we had resources. You can do your resume there. You can learn how to apply for jobs. Like libraries are just the mecca of all resources. So important and such an integral part of our community. Go to your library, support it because they're using austerity to shut down all of these wonderful programs that, you know, we all grew up with and the world needs, frankly, because we're losing our public spaces to Starbucks and, you know, other 
I don't want to go off. Don't get me started on coffee. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, the, literally, we're, we're losing these wonderful spaces. Like to me, a library, my library was always like a source of, you know, refuge. You know, I could go there. It'd be quiet. No one bothered me. Um, like it was just a wonderful place when I was a kid, you know? So mm-hmm. we need to yeah. keep them. Yeah, I've never witnessed anything as like extraordinary than a bunch of librarians fired up to like get stuff done. It's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. So although the campaign started off really strong, they collected a million books in the first month. Donations soon like slowed down because citizens were already being asked to sacrifice everything for the war effort. So they just couldn't keep up with that pace because people were tired. They were having to give up literally everything to rations and it just wasn't sustainable. Mm-hmm. And many of the books donated, like How to Knit or An Undertaker's Review, were rejected because they assumed, unfairly if you ask me, that the soldiers wouldn't have any interest. I mean, if you're bored, you might want to learn how to knit. I think that was just unfair. <laughs> like, chunk that one. <laughs> and on top of that, a lot of hardcovers are really bulky, and you just can't lug those around to the battlefield. So in 1943, the BBC officially ended. Womp womp. But our man Trotman wasn't about to give up. He decided that they needed a different approach. And over the course of the next year or so, he consulted with publishers, authors, and designers about how to quickly and efficiently increase the number of books that made it to the troops. So in 1943, together with graphic artist H. Stanley Thompson and publisher Malcolm Johnson, he officially proposed the idea of the ASE, or the Armed Services Edition. Have you ever heard of it? No, I haven't. Actually, so exciting. Do tell. I'm so pumped. pumped. Okay. So these are mass produced paperback books printed in the United States and they would be sent overseas on a regular basis. Rather than depending on the taste or the generosity of, you know, fellow citizens, soldiers were going to receive a mix of desirable titles from classics to bestsellers to Westerns, humor books, poetry, etc. So they just get massive crates of books and they could just pick what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And they were all specially selected by a volunteer panel of literary luminaries. Ooh. What a title. <laughs> LLs. The original yeah. LLs. We have a plan and we had books picked up. There was just one more hurdle. They still couldn't figure out how to make these doable to take on the battlefield. So in order for this project to be successful, the books had to be war ready. Quote, flat, wide, and very pocketable. Although five different presses quickly volunteered to help make the books for free, their machines were normally used to print magazines, which were, you know, flat and wide, but they were too big for the average soldier's pocket. So Trotman and Thompson solved this problem by printing two books at a time laid on top of each other. And then workers in the presses would print out double pages, cut them in half, and then sort them into appropriate piles. And then they would be stapled together that way that it like glue wouldn't attract insects because sometimes when you're in the middle of nowhere in a trench bugs are attracted to that glue in books right and because of the varying sizes of the printing presses two types of ases resulted a smaller one that's about the size of a breast pocket or a postcard and then the other would fit in their hip pocket and they're so cute i have pictures hold <laughs> okay <laughs> <definitely. you> <laughs> love to see them both kinds were horizontally printed, almost like a flip book. These design choices weren't lost on the soldiers. Quote, whoever made them hip size, pocket size was a stroke of genius, one soldier wrote. If you're ever really interested in this topic, to read the quotes of soldiers about what the books did for them, 
it's so heartwarming and it's just so cool. That's incredible. Here, I'll show you a picture of the books first. Those are very cool. I love that. I love that. A lot of them are worn because they were all like used so much. Like The Great Gatsby. Very cool. Moby Dick. And there's so many photos of soldiers reading them and they were just, yeah, they're so cool. Think about a book can literally, we know, we have the comfort of not having gone through that, you know, those horrific eras. And think about what a book does for us. It can literally take us away, you know, take us to another place. Imagine yeah. being stuck in a trench and, you know, your only escape is that. And that's, I mean, the people who came up with that, the librarians that facilitated it are heroes. So I'll talk about it at the end. So when I got to work on this project, I was in a class in grad school and the Military Museum of Arkansas had a box of these books and a box of pinups and they were like, do something with these. <laughs> so we were trying to think like, how? Do, what do these things have in common? It was the escapism that they were just so desperate to have something to get their mind off of where they were at because they were in such horrible conditions, but then also a way to like fantasize about after the war, what life will look like and the books meant so much. So many of them would read classics. And then when they got out of the war, they wanted to go to college. And there was a huge spike of people wanting to go and study, you know, classics and literature and history. And I was like, this is just amazing. Awesome. So, yeah, books can be really, I mean, a lot of us could say like our worst days, we could go read a book. Just imagine being in World War II, <laughs> like how much you needed that. That's, that's oh, brilliant. So the first set of ASEs was released in October of 1943. Each month for the next four years, a crate after crate of books made their way overseas to soldiers, pretty much wherever they were. Quote, they had been dropped from parachutes into lonely Pacific islands. They issued a huge lots to hospitals. They passed out to soldiers. I mean, they were literally passing them out in trenches. Like people would show up with big bags and be like, here you go. And then even if there was one quote, where this guy went to the BX and was like, why is everybody swarming around this thing? He thought the lighters were back because they were out. And then somebody's like, no, it's better. It's books. So it's just like, <laughs> head, like seeing like everybody almost fighting over these books. It's just so cool. They were a huge and immediate hit. Quote, never had so many books found so many enthusiastic readers. And that was from the Library of Congress. Quote, servicemen read them while waiting in line for chow or a haircut when they're pinned down in a foxhole or when they're stuck on a plane for a milk run. So every second they had a chance to whip the book out, they were. Imagine like how much that helped them get through. Just yeah. I mean, and also just like the idea that you have, you know, rather monotonous duty, but at the same time, you it's the one thing that gives you anticipation because you can get through the next three hours because then you get to flip the page, you know, yeah. and find out what comes next. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. And some soldiers reported that the ASEs were the first books they had ever read cover to cover. Troops cherished their shipments, passing them around to the point where they were just illegible. Quote, they are as popular as pinup girls, one soldier wrote. <laughs> to heap one in the garbage can is tantamount to striking your grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. It was like criminal if you didn't treat it like perfectly. And sometimes particular titles had lasting effects. Betty Smith, who wrote A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, went out in a shipment one year and received 10 times more fan mail than any other time. 
when we were doing this project, we saw so many letters from authors that said that the soldiers started like a pen pal relationship because they wanted to know more about the book or, you know, a few of them be like, I want to write a book, you know, and asking questions. So then it was like a connection with the authors, too. So they had another way to escape, which I thought was really fascinating. Very cool. One 20 year old soldier who read that book while recovering from malaria told her, quote, that book caused his dead heart to turn over and become alive again. Imagine being those authors, too, like hearing like you saved my life. I can't imagine. Indeed. That's mind blowing. Truly. During a Library of Congress event in 1983, veteran Arnold Gates remembered tucking storm over land into his helmet Quote, during the lulls in the battlefield, I would read what he had wrote about another war and found a great deal of comfort and reassurance. You know, I would never think of that. But, yeah, you'd see somebody surviving, you know, a different a, sh- a shared experience over yeah. time. Definitely. As some of my ancestors, like I was read the Iliad as a, as a child. I'm an Indo-Greek. So it's kind of a family tradition. But I know that because of that, everyone in my father's family served in the military in, in India. And they all have had the same kind of relationship with it because well, how should I say this? Spanning the eons, understanding that that is kind of one of mankind's shared conditions being at war, unfortunately, gave them a lot of comfort. And, you know, it, it, they fought in World War II against the Japanese. And I know all of them read the Iliad. And that's why I had to read it when I was a kid. <laughs> um, so, like, yeah, it's, it's fascinating what wor- words can do. And shared experience is so important. I mean, that's that's what history is, right? Basically, yeah. a memory of our collective experience. That's incredible. And then also, some books weren't doing so hot before this, like The Great Gatsby. And then when it was released in one of these crates, it just blew up. Between 1943 and 1947, the United States military sent 123 million copies in over 1,000 different titles to troops serving overseas. By the time the war ended, they'd also transformed the publishing industry, turning the cheap, lowly paperback into an all-American symbol of democracy and practicality. I love it. Because you know what? Like, yeah, I don't like hardcovers that much. (laughs) Like, they look good on the shelves, but they're difficult to wield. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's just amazing. So many armed service editions remain available if you go to a used bookstore. The only complete collection is held in the Library of Congress. And there's a near complete collection at the library in the University of Alabama. And then a lot of other American universities have them. And like I said, that museum has a, they just had a giant box of them. And then I didn't know this until today. In November of 2002, Andrew Carroll used $50,000 of a donation to print 100,000 copies of four new armed service editions to send to military personnel overseas in combat zones. So that was right after 9-11. Really? No idea. Neither did I. And if you ever find yourself in Little Rock, Arkansas, you should absolutely go to the MacArthur Museum of American Military History and check out my exhibit. <laughs> Definitely. Say that again. Where, 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 can you give us details? It's called the MacArthur Museum of uh, Arkansas Military History. It's in Little Rock. So it's downtown by the Capitol area. It's a fantastic military museum they have military history from the civil war to present and uh, it's really cool and so this exhibit's called fiction and fantasy escaping the rigors of world war ii through paperbacks and pinups so shameless plug i drew the pinup and i'm really proud of it and i designed the template and then i did two panels i didn't do the book side i did the pinup pinup side which was really fun because they were like 
you need to be able to talk about pinups, but you can't offend all the old people in Arkansas. And I was like, well, how are you supposed to do that? (laughs) (laughs) And I had to do the section about like Playboy. And I was like, well, this is not going to go over well, but it was really fun. And then also a shout out to my team. So David, who was on an episode with the Marquis de Sade, uh, Patreon fam hunter. And then there's Catherine, Jaina, to Jessica C. So I'll just call them Jessica Cha, Jessica Co. <laughs> uh, John, Mary, Kate, Morgan, Patty, Rachel, and Tara. So all of them are on the team with me. It was really fun. And I'll show you a picture. Shout out to everyone. Uh, That's awesome. That's so fascinating. What a wonderful thing to be part of. That's amazing. Yeah, I had such a great time because it was so it was so challenging to make it work because we just had a pile of books and a pile of pinups and be like, figure something out. <laughs> but once we figured it out, it was so great. But yeah. Beautiful. That's that's amazing. Great job. I've got to go there one day. It's really cool. I know everybody's like, oh, why would you go to Little Rock? But I mean, there is the presidential library just like a block away. and So it's just a really cool place. I mean, it's not the biggest museum in the world, but it's it's really well done. And the the building itself was the arsenal. And so during the Civil War, there was actually a moment where they surrounded the arsenal. And if a shot would have been fired, the Civil War would have started here. So it's kind of like a standoff moment. Awesome. That's amazing. Tr- truly, like those pictures just blew my mind. All right. So you got a spooky story for us, a spooky book. I do i do okay so this is a true horror story coming at us out of the mists of time michael Crichton wrote a book about it called eaters of the dead you may know the movie that was made from the book it was called the 13th warrior but this is a true story so i'm just gonna go straight into it is that cool with you yeah yeah all right so in the year 922 in the common era an embassy was sent from baghdad to the king of the bulgars The Bulgarian people at that time hadn't moved into Europe. They were along the Volga River in Russia. At that time, Baghdad was kind of like the light of civilization. It was the center of this huge Islamic empire with magnificent buildings and structures, the center of learning, mathematics, all kinds of things. The ambassador that they chose to send to the north was named Ahmad Ibn Fadlan. He was not a worldly man. He was a a city dweller, if you will. This is a tale of a city slicker moving into the countryside <laughs> and far beyond. So he led a caravan to the king of the Bulgars. His instructions were to introduce him to the teachings of Islam. And also the king of the Bulgars wanted to know about Arab mathematics so he could build walls for his city, fortifications. He led a long caravan and they went north from Baghdad. And he, as you can imagine, for a city person, you know, 50 miles out of your city, it's strange. A hundred of miles away from your city, it's stranger. Now imagine you're in 922, a thousand miles from your city or in a completely different planet. He, when they reached the banks of the Volga River, we're talking north of Turkey, mm-hmm. um, the only settlement there was a trading post set up by the Volga Vikings. When they arrived there, they were granted, they were allowed to stay there in exchange for gifts, which they gave. But unfortunately, while they were there, unfortunately for Ibn Fadlan, the king, the chieftain of that settlement died. But what's wonderful for us is that his description of what happened afterwards gives us the only true record of a Viking funeral. Oh, wow. 
so what happened was that the king was placed on his ship and they took one of his slave girls that was offered freedom and treated to a night of luxury and whatever she wanted, basically. And she was sacrificed on the ship willingly and to serve him in Valhalla. And they lit the ship on fire with his treasure and it was pushed out onto the river and it, that's where it burned. I'm sure all of us have seen, you know, these, the stereotypical firing of flaming arrow into a ship. Well, all of it, all of that stems from this one story. This story, yeah, this story comes to us from fragments that are scattered across the known world because it became so famous. Literally, the translation that I draw from is the Razi manuscript, which is a Latin translation from the 15th century. But all the way from Al-Andalus, which is Spain today, the Arabs called it Al-Andalus, all the way to Russia, the fragments, we had to put this, this story was put together over the course of the last century. So we got to know it again. Okay. So I'm just going to go straight storyteller mode, lore master, deep in a history style now. (laughs) He's going to take you guys on a trip. Okay. The Viking funeral, the chieftain was dead. The Viking funeral took place. And the next in line to become chieftain was a warrior named Bolvine of massive size. We're talking a Viking of about six, six and a half feet tall, huge muscle, stereotypical Viking. So he assumed the chieftainship. And then as Ibn Fadlan was preparing to leave, a messenger came from the far north, uh, from the, from the mist, like the edge of the known world, as far as our young city dweller was concerned. And he came with a tale that a kingdom, way, way north, off the edge of the known planet, was in peril. So Ibn Fadlan with this envoy deliver his message, and Bolvine summoned the wise woman of the uh, the seer of the Vikings. This old crone walked into the room because a crone she was, and her w- words were venerated, and if a chieftain summoned her, her words were law. She rolled the bones. She carried bones like dice and threw them and saw them and looked at them. And and when she did that, she was the conduit to their gods. And she declared that 12 Viking warriors must go north, but they must have one more with them. And that warrior must be no Northman. 13 warriors must go north. And the 13th must be no Northman. Her head shot up. And she pointed at Ibn Fadlan. Because he was a, you know, spoiled city boy and everyone who rolled with him, while they were city guards, they were not warriors. So he had no choice. He had to go. So what he did was he sent his caravan on to the king of the Bulgars to, to finish the caliph's mission. And this poor, poor man. <laughs> <laughs> was found himself on a Viking boat rowing up the Volga with 12 Vikings. Oh, no. uh, <laughs> so if you can imagine, like imagine perfume, you're dressed in silk robes with gold chains and you are cultured. And all of a sudden you are on a boat with 12 Vikings. You cannot speak the language and you don't understand anything they're saying. But thankfully, as they were rowing up the Volga River, he met a Viking warrior on the ship named Herger, who happened to speak Greek. Now, at this time, Byzantium was the power, the European power on Asia. 
at the mm-hmm. tip of Turkey. Everyone's familiar with Byzantium. It was the remnant of the Eastern Roman Empire, still a world power. So if you wanted to trade on the world stage, you had to speak Greek. Thankfully, Herger spoke Greek, and it's because he was able to communicate with Herger that we get this wonderful story brought down to us. They rode up north. They rode, rode, sorry, rode the ship up north (laughs) for, for six days and then went into the deep forest of Russia. Ibn Fadlan noticed that every morning when they woke up, there would be a fog, mist around them. And he would notice that even before he woke up, whenever there was a mist, the Vikings would be huddled in a circle looking at the mist with their hands near their weapons. When he asked why this was so, he was told not to ask. During his journey through the thick forest, there were no settlements. There were small farmsteads, and wherever he went, the people were terrified of him because they had not seen anyone dressed the way he was or with someone with such dark skin. One night while they were journeying west through the, the, the forest of Russia, Herger shook him awake, and he looked up. And he saw the Aurora Borealis, something he had never witnessed before and something he had never heard of before. We can take that wonderful experience as a journey. Suddenly, he was into a world of myth, mythos, if you will, because, I mean, anyone who's ever seen the Aurora Borealis, they're truly otherworldly. At this point, they kept on their journey and they arrived at the Baltic Sea at which point they were given a ship because Bullvine, the new chieftain, was a man of status. As they journeyed across the Baltic Sea, Herger and the Vikings pointed something out to Ibn Fadlan, and he looked out, and he saw what he thought was a snake in the water, a huge snake in the water. And Herger told him that it was a sea monster, but in fact, it was a pod of whales. And the Vikings laughed because he was terrified. So the in addition to giving them their quest, the old crone, the the seer way back at the camp had given one additional requirement needed to collect his ancestral blade at his settlements. This was a sword rundig, which was a storied ancestral blade that had supposedly been taken from one of his Norse ancestors that had killed the last of the giants. It turned out that Bolvine's father was a very powerful earl in the north. And when they arrived at this settlement, it was called Yatlam. They found it destroyed. It was completely burned to the ground, recently attacked. In fact, they could see the smoke arising before they got there. Bolvine did retrieve Rundig. And Ibn Fadlan asked Herger what could possibly have destroyed such a giant race of men, for the Vikings were huge in comparison, literally about five inches taller on average than the average Arab would be. And Herger simply pointed to the mists in the cliffs. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So they sailed on. Bovine had retrieved his sword. They sailed on. While they were sailing, he noticed that the Vikings had stopped drinking because they had been drinking all along. As we know, our stereotypical Vikings, they like to drink, they like to pillage, they like to plunder. And he asked them why. Why not? And 
Herger told him that they don't drink to honor those who had entered Valhalla, which means the, the slain at Yatlam. That gives us insight to, you know, where like, you know, shows like the Vikings might have got it wrong. Mm-hmm. The day after they found out about a death, they did not party. They took a day to lament. Oh, I did not um, know that. Yeah, so it, it's kind of interesting. What gives credence to his tale so much is that archaeology has dug up these settlements and found his description of them to be exact. Exact almost down to the meter. It's truly incredible. They end up in Denmark and they go to the kingdom of Hrothgar. Hrothgar was a great northern king. A king in Viking terms meant that you had about three or four earls at least under you. And they found that that land was ravaged as they rode inland. When they got to the kingdom, they found Rothgar to live in one of the wonders of the ancient world. It's called the Hall of Hurat. It was a wooden carved structure that was so intricately carved with scenes of the depiction of the Norse pantheon and the Norse gods and their struggle that Ibn Fadlan, who came from Baghdad, which at the time had the most wondrous structures in the entire world, was completely overawed. He said, it was absolutely magnificent. But when he said that, Herger mocked him. He said that if Rothgar had actually put that money into building that hall into defenses, there wouldn't have been a problem because the kingdom of Rothgar had that gigantic wooden construction and a bunch of buildings around it with no fortifications. When they entered the hall, King Rothgar told them, of the peril of their land. And this is when Ibn Fadlan found out the name of the enemy. The name of the enemy was the Wendel. That's all he knew, the Wendel. But what he noticed was that the first time when they said that name, all the Vikings turned pale and were shocked and scared because he had never seen them be scared or terrified at all. That night, King Rothgar laid out a feast, but he noticed that the Vikings weren't drinking. They ate a little bit and they lay down. He fell asleep as well. In the middle of the night, he was shaken awake by Herger and with a hand across his mouth. He noticed that the Vikings, although they were pretending to sleep, were all actually awake. Their eyes were open. Then he noticed that there was a strange smell, a sickly sweet kind of smell. And he noticed that the gates at the hall of Rothgar were shaking. The gates suddenly flung open and in came the window. All he saw were creatures with the heads of bears, but that moved like men because it was very dark in the hall. The embers of the fires had gone down. Ibn Fadlan was knocked unconscious in that battle, so he didn't get to see anything more. In the morning when he recovered, all that remained of this of the battle were two Viking dead warriors. Two of the company of 13 were dead, and they f- discovered the arm of, of a Wendell, even oh. though the other war- Viking warriors swore they'd killed many. The arm was hairy, shaggy, and it stank, and it had covered in the claw of a bear. Bulvine consulted with the king, who insisted that they have a feast over this great victory. But Bolvine said, no, this was not a victory at all. And if they waited there, the Wendell would come and eventually devour them. 
So he decided to take the attack to the enemy, which Herger translated to him, <laughs> to this poor city boy, that we have to go to the desert of dread and slay the Wendell. So on they went. They rode all day through the night and into the next morning to get there. And when they arrived, they found the border marked by poles with the skulls of bears on top. They entered the land, the desert of dread, only to find it completely empty. The Wendell settlements were completely devoid of signs of life beyond a few plumes of smoke. Bullvine consulted again with the warriors, and they decided that they needed wisdom to figure out what to do next. So they walked back to their horses and rode. And Ibn Fadlan came into one of the coolest things that comes down to a history. And this may well be where our modern iteration of them comes from. They were taken to a village of dwarves. So what happened with that particular society of Vikings was that any little person that was born was considered blessed of the gods and their parents were considered blessed of the gods for bearing them. A little person was taken to live separately with other little people. They were given a place of prominence and they were metal workers. If any of this sounds familiar, our Lord of the Rings <laughs> <Yes>. is good. Um, <laughs> so, That's so cool, though. Normally in history, you hear about how they're shunned from the community. That's so cool that they were like revered. They were venerated and the swords and daggers they made were considered priceless, like things of like you would never sell it. They were so valuable. And so they were taken to the, the chieftain of these dwarves. And he informed them that in order to defeat the Wendell, they must kill their mother and then face the Korgan. Even at that point, Ibn Fatman asked Herger what the Korgan was. And he said the Korgan was a dragon. Oh, man. The chieftain of the dwarves gave them daggers and rope and told them that they must slay the mother of the Wendell in the Caves of Thunder. This is where the, the Wendell had retreated. And he told them not to attack them from the front. There was a landward entrance to this. And he told them of a secret passage to get in there. So they left the dwarves. And unfortunately, Ibn Fadlan apparently had many passages about spending the night with the dwarves, learning their customs. But those are lost to history. Aww. I'll continue the story. But I just thought like that one fragment is so worth knowing because literally when I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, Gimli. Like, you know, <laughs> it, yeah. it, it, it really spoke to me. So they rode to the Thunder Cliffs. They used the sealskin rope to tie a rope down to this cave system. It's called the Thunder Cliffs because every time the waves crashed in, it made a, a sound like thunder. And Ibn Fadlan thought he understood that. When they finally climbed down, his arms were burning. He thought he was going to die several times because he was going to let go of the rope. But the Vikings made the climb effortlessly. They were then required to swim underwater for a ridiculous amount of time because his lungs were burning and he thought he was going to die when he was finally pulled out of the water only to find himself in a dark cave. The Vikings were there ahead of him. I won't go into too much detail, but in essence, they snuck their way through the cave, killing the Wendells where they could. And the groups of Wendell that they did kill it turned out that they were in fact men. They were men who wore the heads of bears, very hairy, very, very hairy, which has made historians ever after speculate on whether there was some kind of remnant, not of a Neanderthal society, but some sort of spin-off of it. 
Um, mm-hmm. they, they fought their way to the central cavern and Bullvine entered and fought the mother of the Wendell who wore snakes around her neck and looked almost asexual. Bullvine did kill her, not with the dagger, but with Rundig, the, the, the sword of his ancestors, as the, the seer had proclaimed before he dropped the, the dagger in the battle. And unfortunately, in the, in the course of that battle, she has stuck him with a quill in his stomach. It looked like a minor wound, but he was weakened. So they took Bullvine out. But however, the screams of the mother of the Wendell caused all the Wendell in the caves to leave. So they were able to not have to swim again. They were able to leave by the landward side. When they got back to the Hall of Rothgar, they discovered that Bullvine was completely ashen white and dying. They gave him a thick onion broth soup. The healers of the of that Viking society smelled the opening of the wound. And when they smelled that pungent broth through the through that wound, they discovered that he was going to die because that meant that the the quill the pin had struck his stomach and that was yeah. a mortal wound back then. Oh no thanks. However, that night the Corgan came. If you were standing outside the Hall of Rothgar, you would have seen cream of fire coming down the the hills around the society, literally like a coiling serpent. But it turned out that the Corgan was not indeed a dragon, as you may have guessed. It was in fact cavalry carrying torches. Oh. And so there was a final clash, a final battle at the climax of which Bullvine walked out white as a ghost and fought his last battle with his ancestral blade, um, Rundig. It, it seemed like the Vikings were about to lose the battle, but the sun rose and the sun burned off the mists because the Wendell only fought with it. After that, the Wendell disappeared and quite literally disappeared from history for they were never seen, heard of again. Because apparently killing their mother had disrupted their society and they had lost so much, so many men and women fighting the Vikings that it was over. Bolvine was given a king's funeral from which we get our second best description of a Viking funeral. He was given the funeral of a king and Ibn Fadlan had to go home. So he said goodbye to Herger, even though they begged him to stay. He was going to give be given a lordship in Viking lands. But he wanted to go home, obviously. <laughs> um, and he said goodbye to Herger. And as they, as he left in his ship, the last passage that we have from Ibn Fadlan ends, then it happened. So that's where the story ends. We don't what? know what happened. What we do know is that he did make it back to Baghdad in 924. And he delivered this story to the, to the caliph. It was recorded. And it became famous and spread across the known world. Everyone wanted to hear it. That's why it was able to be reassembled through the fragments. And if you want to know the whole story, I, I know I didn't do it justice. I tried, but I didn't do it justice here. Listen to my episode, Demons in the Mist. It's the entire story right there. But, it was so good. Yeah. So I hope you guys yeah. enjoyed that. This was, was cool. It was. Yeah, I, th- I thought I you guys did. would like that because so much of our modern lore is literally comes from that story. Like, like you said, Lord of the Rings, and even like the Hobbit, like dragons. Like, there's so many things that we just 
like several books kind of wow he just blew my mind it's 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 one of those great things if you guys want to know the sources i give them in in the opening of that episode but there's a manuscript called the razi manuscript which is the um manuscript from um al andalus which is modern modern spain Mm -hmm. and it's it's fascinating it's so great and that's the only manuscript that mentions the wendell and this this kind of struggle and you can see why, like, imagine, like, you know, anywhere in Europe, you'd want to hear this tale because it's like an actual horror story. <laughs> like, you're ma- you're battling yeah. mo- demons from the mists, which is, is really cool. Yeah. And like you said, it makes perfect sense if they're a matriarchal society and you kill their matriarch and then you lost so many men that they would just kind of disappear from history. It makes perfect sense. And That's what's sad. fascinating also is that recent archaeology has revealed that more primitive societies existed, small pockets of them, but they found archaeological evidence that primitive societies existed alongside Viking society in Denmark in the wilderness, which is where the Wendell lived. So it's cool. And one description in particular of this fortress called Trelberg, which he saw while he was doing um, going across the Baltic, is exact. Like there has never been a better historical description to match an archaeological dig like they they literally did it according to what he said and they found everything he said so he's like one of the most true witnesses that we've seen that is so interesting that is fascinating oh that story's got everything (laughs) got the spooky you got the history it's one of those great stories that I'm just so glad that we're kind of like in a golden age of history in the last kind of century where we're marrying, you know, science with research, with archaeology, and we can actually get an actual picture of the past, you know, so that the tales written in ancient history, be it something like this or something like Herodotus can or something like Plato can be, you know, put in actual context and give real value to it. That's some of my favorite things to research because our technology is so great now that we're able to go back and really prove things and disprove things. It's just so fascinating. Oh, I'm really glad you did that too. I don't think a lot of people realize just how amazing Baghdad was. The heart of culture and the art and the things they knew and the stories they told it was so fascinating. Right. Like, yeah, running water, math, advanced mathematics, things that like, you know, we would be at home with even today. And then <laughs> to go from that to the Viking world, it must have been just <laughs> talk about culture shock. Oh, my God. <laughs> he, yeah. uh, for, the, for, the, for the record, he described the Vikings as the filthiest race God ever created. So... Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, everybody definitely go check out his episode on that and get the get all the details and the sources and I'll link everything in the episode too to make it easy. But thank you again. Tell everybody how to find your podcast. Yeah, uh Deep in History is available on every platform, uh any anywhere you find podcasts. Also, I have a YouTube, although you know it's not the best formula for that you can follow me at uh deep in history on twitter and instagram and yeah check out deep in history you know don't just learn history live it yes highly recommend 10 out of 10 <laughs> thank you thank you and it's been such a joy spending time with you this has been amazing i had so much fun thank you for having me 
You're welcome. This has been so much fun. I love just geeking out and you're such a good storyteller. I've just been thrilled to have you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. I want to thank Arjun again for joining me this week for this episode. I think it's almost serendipitous that he was my guest this week because we had so many great conversations about living through history and history not necessarily repeating itself, but rhyming. And I think that it was really impactful giving the events of this week. If you would like to watch these episodes live and comment along, then join Patreon. That's patreon.com slash historical AF. And speaking of patrons, I have some shout outs. First of all, a huge thank you to Jolly J, who went from a brilliant AF patron to a prolific AF patron. And now, my friends, you are in that tier where you get a gift for me every quarter, and I am excited. <laughs> thank you so much for your support. and. It's been an absolute joy getting to know you, Jolly J. Also, we have a new member of the family this week, somebody who is very near and dear to my heart, Stacy. And I've talked about her on the podcast before. She worked with me in the teen center at the library for years and kept me sane in some of those weird ass librarian situations. I'm excited that she joined the fam because literally she is the right kind of nerd to fit in. And I'm so excited. Thank you so much for supporting me too, friend. I appreciate it so much. <laughs> And again, if you want to join the fam, that's patreon.com slash historical AF pod. There's so many benefits. The tiers range from $2 to 20. Every tier you get more and more stuff. By the time you get to 20, you're getting like 30 things. <laughs> so I, I, I like to spoil y'all. If you have a story you want to send in for the extra AF, send that to historicalafpod at gmail.com. If you just want to email me ideas for stories, corrections, etc., etc., also just email me historicalafpod at gmail.com. If you'd like to buy merch, and I just revamped the merch store. It looks really great. I'm really proud of it. <laughs> that is shop.spreadshirt.com slash historicalafpod. And don't forget to follow on social media. It's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Historical AF Pod. And if you have like three minutes and want to rate and review the podcast on Apple, that would be fantastic. It helps so much and it is so appreciated. And if you don't want to remember any of this and just want to go to one place and find it all, that is historicalafpodcast.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you next week with Cats Part 1 with Natalie C. Okay, bye!